You're about to hear a conversation with myself and Connie Comstock. For those of you who have been lucky enough to be her student, her coaching client, her colleague, or her friend, you know what a powerful woman she is. Connie is a retired Hoffman Institute teacher who taught for 30 years. She's fiery and passionate and smart and a role model in so many ways. I'm deeply moved by her ability to live her life with two core pillars. One is curiosity. The way she says it is, I want to know what I don't know. And two is a non-negotiable requirement of loving everything she does. And she has brought that to every chapter of her life, including the one she's currently in of retirement. This is an incredibly inspirational conversation. I am so excited for you all to listen. Let's jump in. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Sharon Moore, and I'm one of your hosts. And on this podcast, we talk to Hoffman graduates about how their courageous journey inward impacted their personal lives, but also how it impacted their community and the world at large. So tune in and listen in and hear how our graduates' authentic selves, how their love, how their spirits are making a positive impact on our world today. In other words, get to know their love's everyday radius. All right, Connie Comstock, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. Woo, it is such an honor to be the one who gets to interview you, Connie. I've been excited for days. <laughs> so, Connie, you have such a deep history with the Hoffman Institute, and that's not even all of your life. That's just a portion of your life. But I do want to start there because it is so pivotal. And so can we start from the very beginning? When did Hoffman come into your life? What was the process like then? What was going on in your life that got you there? The process was really in a transitional time. It had been a 13-week process where people kept coming to class and leaving and coming and leaving and transitioned to a seven-day residential process. I heard about the process in maybe it had done four processes in residence. And the way I heard about the process in 1985, Bob Hoffman wanted my brother, who's a writer, to help him write a new book about the way the process was happening now. And as a result of that, my brother did the process. He did some parts of the 13-week process, but then he went and did the whole seven-day process. And he was so impressed. And he gave me a copy of Bob Hoffman's book about the original 13-week process. And he never, ever expected me to, to do it. He just thought it would, I would be interested in knowing what he had done. And this is my older brother, who I was very close to. I had just left a job that kept me very busy. And I realized I was a workaholic. And I mean, I was just like working 80 hours a week and traveling all over the place and everything. And I quit and I thought I was going to take a few months off and, and then go back and get another job. And I was delighted to learn about the process. It was like, oh my God, spirit has delivered 
just what I need. And so I talked to Barbara about it, my sister, and she went and did it right away because she had just had some transition in her own life. And I uh, read this old book of Bob's and I cried. And I thought, wow, this is really touching me. Patterns and, and, you know, what rules our life and so forth. And I signed up right away. And I went in, I think it was end of January in 1986. And I loved the process because one of the things that I love is learning things. I love to learn. I love to learn the things that I don't know. And the process was amazing. So touching. These people coming together, they don't know each other. You don't know the teachers. You don't know the students. But forming a community of growth and a kind of enlightenment, what the process does is it enables us to know ourselves. There's so much about ourselves we don't know. And I was stunned how visceral it was. This was not just a thought or a feeling. It was like controlling my life, these patterns. I was thrilled to see the energy of the patterns dissipate and, and come in this connection and with myself and learn that I had a, an essence, we label a, a spiritual self, which was so, has been such a huge thing in my life since I did the process. I was actually going to ask you, you said spirit had delivered just what I needed, but were you already thinking that way at that point? Or is that is that what you say in reflection, in retrospect? Yeah, spirit delivered just what I needed at that point. I don't know if I was thinking spirit delivered it, but I got delivered just what I needed at that point in my life. To understand it was spiritually guided, I think. So you did the, the seven-day process. This was in 1986. Is it too far away for you to know, ooh, this was the pivotal moment. There was this moment in the process that really cracked me open. Do you have one of those moments? I have one moment. It's when we're working with the patterns from our mother. And I realized it was like she kept coming back. Like I could see it, visualize it and feel it. You know, like what a tight hold her patterns had on me and my life. That is the moment, the first moment where I really knew this was powerful and this was going to um, change my life. First of all, you know, really coming to recognize specific patterns of ways of thinking and feeling that were modeled from my, my parents and my family. There was a lot of good, but there were also things that dragged me down sort of marks that I had to hit, that perfectionist, do everything right, do everything well, be a good person. All of that from my family was so powerful in my life. And to feel that I had more free will choice, I was more connected, not with the patterns, but with my essence of who I am and what I want for myself rather than doing what I'm supposed to do. That's an amazing feeling. Freedom. Yeah, I was just going to say, that's, that's liberation if I've ever heard of it. And I mean, do everything right. Even that word, do everything right. It's completely subjective. How do you define right? I know. And right, obviously, was, had something to do with what standards were set in my family. So you had several siblings 
take the process. Were you able to witness how all three of you broke free of the same patterns, really, because it was the same childhood? Did all, all of you manage to break free of, of these patterns? You know, one of the things is the patterns that concern the individual is what you break free from. So yes, my mother did the process when she was in her 70s. All of my siblings did the process. Their partners all did the process. And yes, it, it changes the way that you talk about things, that you think about things, that you feel about. You know, like you're able to be more aware. You know, I haven't had that in my familial experience. So I'm just enamored by this reality where all siblings, all partners, and even your mother have done the process, which in theory means all of you are able to identify when it's a pattern, identify when it's your essence or when it's your spirit, help each other identify it, and then create these connections that are coming from the most pure place. Wow. I don't think we all had the same patterns. You know, like I'm the second child of four. Patterns impacted the, all of that, you know, like where we were in the, in the family. We, we never developed any sort of, in my family, we didn't develop any real sibling rivalry. Yeah, we were like a team. I mean, we helped each other. That was the kind of the, the model. And I don't think we always did it. And, and we did have fights and stuff like that. But I, I said something to my, uh, my younger brother and about, they said, everybody comes to a time where they don't talk to their siblings or something like that. And I said to him, Bruce, do you remember a time like that? And he said, that never happened. It's not like you don't talk to him for a year or something, but you know, like you have the time when you won't talk to them. Ooh, that hurts my heart to imagine that. And I, I mean, that's not my experience. So I don't know. It didn't seem really real to me. No, I think sibling love is so special and so unique, specifically because we share that childhood. We share the most formative and intimate time of our, of our lives, which is the early days. Yeah, but in a lot of families, there's a lot of fighting going on between siblings. Which is not what you experienced. And do you attribute that to the fact that everybody did the process? No, I think that happened in our childhood. I don't know why it exactly happened, but I think there, there was always a sense that we're taking care of our siblings. Like my older brother, Craig, he's the first one. He said, you know, I thought my kind of like duty or job was to, to take care of you, me his younger sister, two years younger. You know, like I always had the feeling with Craig that when any of the other siblings had a triumph or, you know, like a victory or did something good, Craig was the one who wanted to get on the rooftop and shout. And I always felt like I had a cheerleader. That makes me, my heart hurt from love. And, and he did this for, for all the siblings? He was the, he was the cheerleader? I think pretty much a cheerleader. And it, it sort of extended out. I mean, like, he became a cheerleader sort of for his friends. If he was in a relationship with a, with a woman, anything she did that was good, that was he would want to be out there announcing it. Yeah, what a special soul. And he's the one who brought you to Hoffman. That's Craig. Yes, that's Craig, yeah. And Bruce is your younger. Bruce is my younger sibling. Craig was the first one to do the process, and Barbara did it, the youngest. And then I did it. And then a number of years later, Quite a number of years later, Bruce did it. 
I'm going to switch gears a little bit in case people haven't met you, which I know there's thousands of people who have been in your presence and have been lucky enough to be coached or taught by you. But I do want to name this, that you then became a teacher at one point. So when did that happen? Originally, after the process, as I said, it was in a transitional state and it didn't have anybody to run this new institute. And so Bob asked me to be the director shortly after I did the process. Well, I made some suggestions about how they could improve. I was just going to say, but how did he know that you had the skill set? So I, I, I said, oh my God, they're really struggling. I could, I could give them some simple suggestions, which I did. And I found out that the new director of this new institute had just resigned. So I gave my suggestions. They must have told Bob. Bob talked to Craig because he knew Craig. And I said, get Connie to come here and talk to me. I went to his house and I told him some stuff fairly simple things that could be done to, you know, accelerate the, the growth of the Institute, this tiny little Institute. And he said, I want you to be the director. And I, and I said, mm, you know, I've done that now that four times, uh, renovating organizations, building them or whatever. And that's not what I want to do. And he said, well, I don't know what else to do. I think I'll close the Institute if you don't do this. And I said, come on, you can't do that. This is too amazing. The Hoffman process is just like so powerful and so valuable for any human being that you can't do that. So I will help you, but I will kind of be a consultant. Okay, you don't have to pay me. I'll just do this. So I did that. And then I, after I don't know how many months, I thought, I'm, I'm doing everything as a director. I might as well take the title. Maybe it'll be helpful for me. So I did become the director and I created a way for the Institute to grow in different countries in the world. So I think during that period, there was a, I can't remember how many years it was now, four or five. We went from one Institute in, in California to, I think we had like eight countries like Germany and Switzerland and Austria and, and so forth there would be somebody who did the process and they'd say, I want to do it. I want to, I want to create an institute in my country so people can do this amazing piece of work. I had fun. I had fun creating the Hoffman International with Bob. And so you created the Hoffman International and were you also a teacher at that point or were you doing both? I became a teacher. I think I started training in 89 because I thought I could be a better director if I was a teacher. And I became a teacher, I believe, certified in, in 1990. And so I was teaching and then running the institute. And at that point, there was like another person that came in that was able to do some of the work. The, the office was getting bigger. We were having more processes, and that was three years. So I became a teacher. But the thing is, I thought when I did that, that I would become a teacher to be a better director. But the truth is, when I became a teacher, I loved it. I loved teaching. It was being in the middle of the discovery process. The amazing thing about the Hoffman process is it really is people discovering who they are. They are discovering. Nobody's telling them. And all of the things that they do during the process are helping them know themselves and know what's really in their way and know what their passion is and their life force and so forth. So to be able to be in that mix where discovery is going on at a rapid rate is so exciting. And there's so much joy that comes out 
during the process. This is interesting. So in a way, your career, even before you were the director of the Institute, was really directing institutes and taking them from vision to a a larger scale. And then through Hoffman, you had a career change in a way because you learned that you actually enjoy being a teacher. You actually enjoy rolling your sleeves up and being in this journey as people are discovering who they are. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah. I mean, I had taught before other things. When I was in in science, I had had been an instructor and I had taught English in Japan. And But what was going on in the process was so much different than what you think about, what I think about when I think about teaching. There's a lot of guidance and, I don't know, support. And I think on the part of the teachers, there's a lot of curiosity about what's going to come out. Do you know what I mean? Of course. I, the way I would I say it is, we in a way need to, as teachers, we need to stay in the mystery. Like you said, we kind of create the space and they're doing it on their own. They're discovering who they are. They're finding out what's in the way. We're, we're creating the space, but through, like you said, our own curiosity, our own love of this journey in the process and our own ability to stay in the mystery. The second we're not in the mystery, we're no longer doing the work. Being a Hoffman teacher is like, was always going on an adventure. The students may do a lot of pre-work and you get to read it before you meet them, but there's so much more to discover. There's so much more that comes out. So whenever I'd go to teach the process, I felt like I was going on a, a trip, finding out new things, new experiences. It was never dull. No, never. And I also, and I, I imagine you relate to this, but I also felt like not only was I seeing them do their work, every time I would teach, I got a nugget of wisdom for my own journey as well. One of the things I loved about teaching the process was turning things over to spirit. For me, as a teacher, we were walking into an adventure that we didn't know exactly what was going on. We know the steps of the process, but we don't know what's going to go on in the students. And we never fully know what's happened within the students. But it comes out, things come out during the process. And wow, learning about life and the, and the um, amazing diversity and similarities. Now, real quick, I want to go back to something. You said something about turning it over to spirit. Were you trained as a scientist? My graduate work is in microbiology, science. I was an electron microscopist in my 20s. What I'm hearing is your training was a a scientist. And then somewhere in your career, the thing that really spoke to you was this art of turning things over to spirit, not your rational mind, not your scientist brain, but this other part of you that was a surrender to spirit, which I think is amazing. It was very interesting. And I always found that when I was teaching, you know, like step in front of the classroom and turn it over to spirit within myself. And you know the sessions you're going to do, and you have a lot of experience and all that, but you actually listen to spiritual guidance within you, and things always turned out. I mean, things happen in life, and you don't know exactly what to do, and they happen in the process. I always could move through whatever was coming up if I trusted spirit. While I was still a teacher, I moved to... Ashland, Oregon. And the way that happened is I was helping my mother at 85. 
she wanted to move to a small town where she knew nobody. So we took her there and I walked into a house that was being built in the neighborhood we were interested in for my mother. And there was an outside, but there was no interior. There was just plywood and posts and stuff like that and dirt on the ground. And I heard a voice say, this is your house. I wasn't even planning on moving. I was living in the Bay Area. I said, what? To myself, what? And I walked around inside of this partially built house and I thought, shoot, this is too big. The, the land is just dirt and weeds. And, and then I walked back and I was with my older brother, Craig. And I heard this voice again say, this is your house. And so I told him, he said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I guess I'm going to buy it. And that's where I am right now. That's, you know, what I mean. Well, you really listen. And I mean, it's, it was a great choice. It's a great decision, a great move in my life. My whole family ended up living in Ashland. My mother got a house across the park from me. Barbara and Jimmy bought a house. Then my older brother, Craig, bought a house. And then my younger brother, Bruce. And so we were raised in New York. My mother never had this idea that she talked about, that her family would come together in her old age or anything. But that's what happened. We were all here. Wow. All because you were able to listen to your spiritual guidance and then put it into action and trust it. Right. Amazing. A scientist, you know? A scientist, exactly. It's fascinating to think that that was the beginning, that was your training. And then would you say that crossroads or big decisions you made, for example, stopping to teach, right? You taught for 25, over 25 years. Was that also a surrender to, to spirit? How did you know? I quit teaching when I was 75. And I knew that in my early 70s, it was, I thought I would end up teaching just maybe 72 or something. And I kept asking spirit, is it time? Then I got an answer. The time is coming. I had already agreed to teach processes through the end of the year. So I, I did. I taught them through the end of the year and then I stopped. Spirit said so. <laughs> And what was that transition like going from this such deeply rewarding work uh, that is integrated into your family and interwoven into so many key parts of who you are, and then you retire? What was that transition like? That was hard. Okay. One of the things I, I haven't mentioned that is a guiding force in my life that came from my parents is love what you do. You know, when you're choosing work, you know, like a job, you want to love it. You want to be something that you really care about and, and it nurtures you. And for sure, I loved teaching the process. And the idea, and I loved a lot of the other things that I did in my life. But to give that up was, was difficult. But I also wanted to be at my prime, so to speak, when I was doing that. So it was very hard. And I did, for the first time in my life, get a therapist. So I had somebody to talk to about the whole idea of, of leaving work and being retired and, and so forth. And it was a hard transition. I had to find other things that were nurturing and enlivening. I became a hospice volunteer. And that was very interesting because I um, ended up like in a special category hospice volunteers <laughs> interviewing the people who were in hospice, who wanted to be interviewed and videoed. So I worked with another woman who did video stuff and, and somebody would say, yeah, I'd like to make a video. It was like an hour video of my life. And 
the woman who did the video was really good at the video part, but she said when she invited me to go with her, she said, you're so good at, at the questions. Yeah, 30 years as a Hoffman teacher. <laughs> anyway, so we would go and it, it wasn't all, everything wasn't always recorded, but the, the recordings were amazing what people wanted to talk about. They had an idea. If they said they wanted to do video, they had a certain section of their life they wanted recorded. It wasn't their whole life generally. It was just this. She, they wanted a record of it. That was very interesting to see. And some of the people were doing death with dignity and so that they could determine when their life would end and others were just ending their life naturally. But one woman really struck me. It was, it was always hard when the patients were very young. You know, I had one patient who was like 30. She died before I could get to the second session. But there was a woman who was in her early 40s, and she had three young children. And she had, I think, like summer cancer or something. Didn't have very much money. And she was actually spending the time in somebody's basement, which was above the ground, you know, like the windows. Um, but it was the basement of somebody's house. She could hardly talk, and but she wanted to do something for her kids. Her kids did not know she was dying. They knew she was sick, but they didn't know she was dying. So she wanted to write them letters. So that's what we did. I prompted her, like what kind of things she wanted to say. How did you feel when you found out you were pregnant, when they were born? What was the most precious thing about them? And so forth. And I said, and you have to make all these letters ex the same length. You can't. <laughs> one short letter. And we did it. We did it in a couple hours. And I was just taking notes. And I said, I'm going to go home and I'm going to type this up and I'm going to send it to your mother here who was with her. And if it's, if you want any change, just let me know. I did that. The next day I sent it. She said, they're perfect. And the f two days later she died. To be able to do something like that for somebody is such a precious thing. Did you find themes in these interviews that you would have with people who are in hospice, knowing they are leaving their bodies. Was there a theme in all these conversations you were having? No. The only thing I can think of as a theme is something that they wanted remembered. It wasn't the same kind of thing always. And it was surprising. And they say, no, I'm done now. That's it. You know, they say, I've said what I want to say. And I was surprised at what it was. I remember one time there was an older woman and her, her daughter was there in the room. And her daughter comes and said, don't you want to talk about such and such? And she said, no. Her daughter had an idea about what should be recorded, but it wasn't the same as her mother. And with all of your years of surrendering to spirit, of creating space, of letting people have their own journey, you were able to do exactly that with these people in hospice. And are you still doing that? I stopped doing it during COVID. How many years between the beginning of your retirement and COVID? And, and what role did that play? So I probably did the, the hospice maybe like three or four years. What I'm struck by is in all of your stories, and we haven't even touched upon your chapter pre-Hoffman, but in the things that I have learned and heard from you, there is spirit in all of your crossroads, even this. So it was hard. And then I went to hospice. You didn't know that you would be recording stories of people and using the same skills that were so ingrained in you and things that you like to do by hearing people's stories. You just went to hospice and said, hey, I'd like to help. 
And next thing you know, you're doing this magical work that is, what did you say your parents said? You need to love what you do. You need to care about what you do. It seems like this happened again in your chapter with hospice. Yeah, that was definitely a theme. You know, how to decide what to do in life. You have to love it. You have to really care about it. You don't just do something for money or I need a job or, you know, something like that. And so when you retired and, and started hospice, were you able to undo identity around I'm a Hoffman teacher or was that not even, did you have to undo stuff around identity that was built through the 30 plus years of being a Hoffman teacher? I don't think so. I think I, I was able to carry my, not just from Hoffman, but from other things, I think I was able to carry my skills over to my next thing. But it wasn't always the same. I wasn't always doing the same skills. I went from science. And then the next thing I did was go and live in Japan and teach English. And that had a lot to do with the inquiry, you know, like wanting to learn things, wanting to know more. Like when I was teaching English, <laughs> I loved to get the students to talk about things that were innately Japanese or something cultural. So I could, you know, I loved that. That was fascinating. Then I'm always looking to get things done right, done well. And that's what got me. So I ended up as a director of that school in Japan by getting all the teachers together. And um, we came up with a different curriculum than what they had. It was a pretty um, important school in Tokyo. I mean, it was considered a good English school. So from scientist to Japan to teach English. And once again, here you are showing your skills, showing your commitment, showing your passion. And next thing you know, you're leading the school. And I like to get people together. I like the idea of working together. So having a team. And so getting all the teachers together in Japan, a lot of us were from other countries. Like I was from US, but there was people from, from Canada and English speaking places, as well as some Japanese teachers. I love to get them together to get all their ideas in whatever we were creating. And that was fun. And they loved it. And uh, even the secretaries, so to speak, secretaries in the, in the office, they were sort of like just tea servers. But I said, look, I don't read Japanese, so I need help. So you, you got to step up and have a different job. So they became like administrative assistants. And I love that. So it's kind of seeing how we can make this as good as we could. And maybe that's what it is, is. It's this combination of, here are the themes that I've seen so far with you. At the core is you want to know things. You want to know, I think you've said it, I want to know what I don't know or something like that. And then there's this, uh, I have to make sure that I care deeply and love what I do. And then there's this ability that you have to see where things can be better, where they can be more efficient, where they can be more effective. And you don't keep that to yourself. You share it. Next thing you know, you are leading the transformation of this organization, whether it be the Japan school, whether it be your other chapters, whether it be the Hoffman Institute, you know, and so on and so forth. So those traits are the ones that keep following you, this curiosity, wanting to learn things, this core tenet of wanting to make sure you love what you do, and then this ability to see, hey, you know, if we did it this way, it might be easier and it might be more effective. Beautiful. I, and I think the team effort came also from the way my family was. We didn't do everything together, but I think we learned to work with each other, consider each other. So I love working in teams. That's another wonderful thing about teaching the process is you work in a team. 
That's one of my favorite things. It's like a team and a production that we put on together as a team. So Connie, there was something you mentioned earlier that you said you did hospice and something else. What is that something else? I teach courses at a volunteer Osher Lifelong Learning Institute that's connected to the university. It's all volunteer teachers. I'm on the curriculum committee and I also teach and um, help other teachers create courses. We have like a hundred and some courses every term. So it's really quite interesting. I'm in, in charge of the personal development section of the catalog. Oh my God, of course you are. That's the perfect fit for me. Yeah, for you. When you connect with spirit at this point, this is what spirit wants you to do. It's a way to be in community and you're giving, I'm giving something. I actually teach a course called Living and Aging Solo for people without family and how to have a, a full life in this uh, after retirement. Beautiful. We do need to start to wrap up, even though we have not, there is still so much more with you, Connie. You're just so full of life. I think if people didn't know you and were just listening, they would never guess we're talking to somebody who's retired. You, you have the spirit of a, I don't know, I'm just going to give an age, even though it's irrelevant, but like a 30 something, you've just got this youthful energy. And it seems to me like we've identified those pillars. It's the curiosity, the always wanting to learn. It's the making sure you love what you do. And then it's the ability to see, Hey, how do we, how do we improve this? And those three just kind of keep you very engaged. And it's quite, quite a lovely model for those of us who haven't stepped into retirement yet, or even just looking for a fulfilling life, no matter what chapter. Having the right goals, you know, the idea, the, the whole thing about loving what you do and just go do it has been fabulous. Well, the just go do it is the interesting part because I think for you, just go do it is usually spirit has a role in that. It's not just, oh, I'm going into action. It's like you said, spirit has delivered. Even before you knew to say it was spirit, spirit delivered all your life, probably. Yes. Yes, it did. Beautiful. Well, Connie, Thank you so much for sharing, for your presence, for your fire and your passion and your wisdom. And uh, I feel so honored and lucky to be the person who's interviewing you. And I'm looking forward to staying in touch and continuing the conversations. Okay. Me too. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Rossi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.